Hello and welcome to another episode of Laymanology. Today we're going to pick up the question I asked you guys last time. Should the polluter pay? The short answer is yes. And for the long answer, stay tuned to this episode. Last time we spoke about externalities. To refresh your memory, an externality is a cost or a benefit that an uninvolved third party has to bear. If you'd like to understand in even more depth what an externality is, check out my previous episode. All right. To answer our question, let's revisit the example of the polluting firm. This firm produces, let's say, water bottles, and as a result of its production processes, releases large quantities of toxins into the atmosphere in the water. I want you to think of who all might be affected by the firm's actions. Take a second, pause the podcast, think about it. Here's the list that I came up with. People residing in the area, since they breathe the polluted air. Those using the local stream for activities such as washing clothes, playing in the water, or even drinking it. Fish in the stream whose ecosystem will be destroyed, and most worrying of all, the damage it causes for children in their developmental stage. And this doesn't even begin to cover all the adverse effects that the firm's pollution has on the ecosystem. I'd have to reserve that list for a different video. I think you're getting a sense of where I'm going with this. It's not hard to understand that the polluting firm is causing catastrophic and at times irreparable damage. But you already knew that. The question is, should the firm pay for the damage it's doing? And the answer is pretty intuitive. I mean, for the damage they're doing, they should obviously pay. Or maybe it's not as intuitive for some people. And if you're one of those people, stick around. Hopefully, you'll get a more convincing answer to the question I asked. So, I think we're all agreed, right? The polluter should pay. But the operative word here is should. Sure, getting the polluter to pay is just and fair. But how do we get behemoth industries and firms to do this? Like I said in the previous episode, it isn't easy and governments have had to develop a set of strategies to get the polluter to pay. Let's discuss a few of them. The first one and probably the most obvious one is a tax. And the most common form of tax is an indirect tax. This indirect tax will be imposed on each unit of good produced by the firm. So say the firm was producing water bottles at 10 rupees per bottle. To impose an indirect tax, the government would step in and say, you can continue producing bottles at 10 rupees, but for each bottle you produce, you have to give us 1 rupee. I hope I haven't lost you. So after the tax is imposed, the cost of production for the firm, instead of 10 rupees, becomes 11 rupees. Now, you might ask, but what's the point of the tax? How is it going to help the affected individuals and animals? Well, the government will use the collected taxes to aid aggrieved parties. Rather, the government should. And that's the basic premise of an indirect tax. And just so you can sound smart and intellectual and cool, the other name for these taxes is a Piguvian tax, after The Economist, Arthur Pigou. Before we move on to the next policy, I want you to pause and think about the benefits and negatives of this policy. To start off, one obvious benefit is that we've finally gotten the polluter to pay for all the damage it has caused, and we're using the collected taxes to help affected parties. However, think about it. 
are we really incentivizing the firm to use more eco-friendly, sustainable machinery? Not really. We're only making production more expensive, not more eco-friendly. And a lot of the time, the taxes that the government imposes are chump change for firms that rake in billions and billions. This makes you question the usefulness of an indirect tax. And finally, and probably the most pressing concern, how are governments supposed to calculate and decide how much tax to impose? How much is enough? How much is too much? These are difficult questions, and even the most qualified of economists struggle with the answers. Hopefully, our next policy will be more effective than the Pigouvian tax. Our next policy is also a tax, albeit a very different one. This one is called a carbon tax. A carbon tax is a tax per unit of carbon emissions of fossil fuels. Essentially, the more carbon a firm emits, the more they have to pay. At present, Sweden has the highest carbon tax rate worldwide at 137 US dollars per metric ton of CO2 equivalent. But what does this policy do that our Pigouvian tax doesn't? How are they different? See, it targets the heart of the problem. The problem isn't that the firms are producing too much. I mean, this is a separate problem, but for now that isn't our concern. The problem is that firms are producing in a way that causes everyone a lot of damage. And by targeting carbon, governments are essentially telling firms, you either produce more sustainably or you pay us a lot of money. So in a way, the government is incentivizing the firm to switch to a cleaner fuel. So in this policy, there's a very clear incentive for firms to behave well. But that doesn't mean that the policy doesn't come with its own set of problems. It does. And these problems are very similar to those we talked about while discussing Pigovian taxes. What production methods produce pollutants? What is the value of the harm? What's the right amount of tax? Like I said, not easy questions to answer. And to answer these questions, the government has to regularly visit firms and understand their production processes, which isn't currently happening for more reasons than one. Uh, anyways, we're going to move on to our final policy and probably my favorite one. This policy is called a cap and trade scheme. And yes, it is as cool as it sounds. So how does this work? Okay. So the government first sets a cap on how much all the firms in an industry can produce. So the government decides based on a lot of research that firms in the water bottle manufacturing industry can only produce 100 million metric tons. This is just a random example and um, I'm just, you know, trying to give you an idea. So the government decides that firms in the water bottling manufacturing industry can only produce 100 million metric tons. So that's the capping part of the scheme. But how is the trading involved in all of this? That's where permits come in. Essentially, governments will issue permits that allow firms to pollute. And all the permits the government issues will add up roughly to 100 million metric tons because the government doesn't want pollution to exceed that level. I hope you're with me so far because this can be slightly confusing. But what happens to these permits? This is where the trading begins. Firms and industries buy these permits. So let's say our favorite water bottle producing firm buys a permit that allows it to produce 1 million metric tons of carbon. If our firm produces exactly 1 million metric tons, it's in the clear. 
But let's say a firm realizes that they're going to produce way more than 1 million tons. What do they do? They shut down. No, I'm kidding. Well, because they want to pollute more, they'll purchase a permit from some other firm. And these permits aren't cheap. They're quite expensive. So it buys a permit for another million tons and manages to produce well within those levels. Essentially, it's paying so it can pollute more. The same applies if it has leftover pollution. I know that sounds really strange, but stay with me. Let's say that after buying its first permit, our firm produces only half of the 1 million metric tons it's permitted. In this case, the firm can sell its permit to some other firm that desperately needs it. Essentially, what's happening here is that the right to pollute is being bought and sold in markets by firms. And if you're interested in reading more about this, you can go check out the EU trading scheme. But the thing is, even with this novel approach, there are going to be several issues. For, ex for example, how do you distribute permits fairly? What, what happens if huge industries bully the government into giving it more permits? How does the government remain impartial? The worry that the scheme will turn political quickly is quite legitimate. <sighs> okay, so we've looked at three policies, but each of them comes with its own set of problems. And sometimes that's okay. We're not really looking for a perfect solution. I mean, the way everything's going, what with climate change and global warming, even a perfect solution might not be enough to save us. Sometimes a good solution is enough. Now, I know that in this episode, we've talked about government policies and how they can be used to get firms in line, but you have a role to play in all of this too. As an affected individual, it's up to you to hold the government and their powerful friends accountable. It's important to keep asking questions and press the government for answers. Don't forget this long talk about policy prescriptions started with you, the affected individual, because you're the most important part of this equation. And that's a wrap for today. Hopefully you were able to understand the basics. And if not, give the episode another listen. See you tomorrow. Bye.